Hello and welcome to the Zero to Finals podcast. My name is Tom and in this episode I'm going to be going through HIV. And if you want to follow along with written notes on this topic, you can follow along at zerodefinals.com in the infectious diseases section or in the infectious diseases section of the Zero to Finals medicine book. So let's get straight into it. Let's start with some basic definitions because it's very important to understand the basics before we go into more detail. HIV stands for Human Immunodeficiency Virus. That's a specific type of virus. AIDS stands for Acquired Immunodeficiency Syndrome. And this is a syndrome of immunodeficiency that's caused by the HIV virus. AIDS is usually referred to in the UK as late-stage HIV. And we don't tend to use the AIDS label anymore. The only time you'll really come across it is when we talk about AIDS-defining illnesses. So some basics. HIV is an RNA virus, so it's made up of RNA material. HIV-1 is the most common type, and HIV-2 usually occurs in West Africa, and it's quite rare outside this region. The virus enters and destroys the CD4 T helper cells, and these are a vital part of the immune system. But as it destroys these CD4T helper cells, it really interrupts a lot of the immune processes that help to kill off bugs. So it causes immunodeficiency. Initially, there's something called a seroconversion illness, which is a flu-like illness that usually occurs within a few weeks of infection. And the infection is then asymptomatic, so they don't have any symptoms until it progresses and the patient becomes immunocompromised and develops AIDS-defining illnesses and opportunistic infections. And this could potentially be years later after the initial infection. Let's talk about transmission. HIV can't be spread through normal day-to-day activities, including things like kissing. It's usually spread through unprotected anal, vaginal, or oral sexual activity. It can be spread from mother to child at any stage during the pregnancy, during the birth, or even breastfeeding and this is referred to as vertical transmission. And it can be spread through mucous membrane, blood or open wound exposure to infected blood or bodily fluids, such as sharing needles with IV drug users, needle stick injuries when you're taking blood from a patient, or blood splashed in an eye. Next, as we talked about, let's go through AIDS-defining illnesses. And there's a long list of AIDS-defining illnesses which are associated with end-stage HIV infection, usually where the CD4 count has dropped to a level that allows for opportunistic, unusual infections or types of cancers to appear that you wouldn't expect in somebody who has a normal immune system. Some examples of things are Kaposi sarcoma. And it's worth googling and having a look at some pictures of Kaposi's sarcoma because it's quite a good spot diagnosis for people to put into MCQ exams as a photograph. Pneumocystis giovecchi pneumonia, which is often called PCP pneumonia. And this is a type of fungal pneumonia that only occurs in patients who have very weakened immune systems but can be really severe. It's worth remembering that this often presents simply with shortness of breath without any crackles on the chest or any chest x-ray changes. It can also cause cytomegalovirus infection, candidiasis, particularly esophageal or bronchial candidiasis, weird and wonderful types of lymphomas, and tuberculosis is a key infection that often occurs alongside end-stage HIV. 
Let's talk about screening. HIV is a treatable condition and most patients are fit and healthy once they're established on treatment. There are many people that have HIV that don't know that they've got the diagnosis and these patients are at risk of developing end-stage HIV complications and also spreading the disease to other people. Generally, the earlier that you catch the HIV infection and make the diagnosis, the better their outcome is likely to be because the treatment is started earlier and you can start monitoring for complications straight away. This means we should basically test everyone that's admitted to hospital with any sort of infectious disease, regardless of their risk factors. Patients with any risk factors should also be tested. And it's worth remembering that antibody tests can be negative for three months following exposure. So if somebody's exposed to the disease and their initial test is negative, they need repeat testing three months after that initial exposure to make sure there's enough time for the antibody to become positive. We used to talk about giving formal counselling and education prior to doing a HIV test, but this is generally no longer necessary and patients simply need to consent to the test. Verbal consent is completely adequate as long as it's documented prior to the test taking place. And it can be as simple as, are you happy for us to test you for HIV? So how can we test for HIV? Well, the first test is an antibody blood test. And this is a typical test that's used in hospitals to screen for HIV. There's even an option for patients to self-sample by requesting a kit online, which is posted out to them. They then take a simple sample of their blood, usually by finger prick testing, and send it back to the hospital to be tested for the antibody. We can do PCR testing for the P24 antigen, which tests directly for the HIV antigen in the blood, so tests directly for the HIV proteins. And this can become positive before the antibody test starts to show a positive result. We can also do PCR testing for the HIV virus levels directly, so that we get a quantity of how much HIV virus is in the blood. And this gives us a result called a viral load. Then we need to talk about how we monitor the HIV. The first thing we monitor is the CD4 count. And remember the CD4 T helper cells are what is affected by the HIV virus. So the main thing we do is check the CD4 count. And this is the number of CD4 cells in the blood. The lower the count, the higher the risk of opportunistic infection. And the normal range for the CD4 count is between 500 and 1200 cells per millimeter cubed. Anything under 200 cells per millimeter cubed is considered end-stage HIV or AIDS and puts the patient at very high risk of developing opportunistic infections. The next thing that we can measure is the viral load. And the viral load is the number of copies of HIV RNA per milliliter of blood. Ideally, we want the viral load to be undetectable, and this refers to a viral load below the laboratory's recordable range, which is usually 50 to 100 copies per mil. The viral load can be in the hundreds of thousands in untreated HIV. Next, let's talk about treatment. And treatment is usually coordinated by specialist HIV or gum clinics, gum standing for genital urinary medicine. And it revolves around a combination of antiretroviral therapy or ART medications. ART is offered to everyone with a diagnosis of HIV, irrespective of what their viral load or their CD4 count is. And this is because we know if we start treatment earlier, the outcomes are generally very good. Some regimes involve only a single combination tablet, 
that's taken once per day and has the potential to completely suppress the infection, cause an undetectable viral load and a normal CD4 count. Specialist blood tests can establish the resistance of each particular HIV strain or the HIV strain that infects that particular patient and it shows which medications should be used to help tailor an individual treatment regime for that particular patient's infection. There's a group called the British HIV Association or the Beaver Association and this offers guidelines on treating HIV and they recommend starting two NRTI medications such as tenofovir and emtricitabine plus a third agent as first line in somebody who's newly diagnosed with HIV. The aim of treatment is to achieve a normal CD4 count and an undetectable viral load. And as a general rule, when a patient has a normal CD4 count and an undetectable viral load on antiretroviral therapy, you can treat their other physical health problems such as routine chest infections the same way that you would in a non-HIV positive patient. It's important to be aware when you're prescribing that these medications have a lot of interactions. So always check the interactions with any medications that you're prescribing with the HIV therapy that that patient is on. There's a few classes of antiretroviral therapies. Remember that these medications against HIV are called highly active antiretrovirus therapy or heart medications. There's protease inhibitors that are shortened to PIs, integrase inhibitors that are shortened to IIs, nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, which are shortened to NRTIs, and non-nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, which are shortened to NNRTIs, and then finally entry inhibitors, which are shortened to EIs. A few additional management points. Prophylactic cotrimoxazole, which is often known as Septrin as the trade name, is given to patients with a CD4 count below 200 millimeters cubed to protect against PCP pneumonia. And this is something worth remembering for your exams and your times on the ward. Additionally, HIV infection increases the risk of developing cardiovascular disease. So patients with HIV need close monitoring of their cardiovascular risk factors and their blood lipids and appropriate treatments such as statins should be started quite early to reduce their risk of developing cardiovascular disease. Women require yearly cervical smears, and this is because HIV predisposes to developing infection with the human papillomavirus, or HPV, which causes cervical cancer. So female patients need close monitoring to ensure early detection of any cervical cancer and early treatment. Vaccination should also be kept up to date, including the annual flu vaccine, the pneumococcal vaccine every 5 to 10 years, hepatitis A and B vaccines, tetanus, diphtheria and polio. But it's important that patients should avoid live vaccines, particularly if they're immunocompromised. The next thing to talk about is reproductive health. And this is important to talk to patients about to prevent transmission of the infection through sexual activities. Generally, Advise condoms for vaginal and anal sex and dams for oral sex, even when both partners are positive. If the viral load is undetectable, then transmission through unprotected sex is unheard of, even in large studies, but it's not impossible. Partners of patients with HIV should have regular HIV tests to make sure they don't contract the disease. Where an affected partner has an undetectable viral load, unprotected sex and pregnancy may be considered. 
It's also possible to conceive safely through techniques like sperm washing and in vitro fertilization or IVF. Caesarean section should generally be used unless the mother has an undetectable viral load. However, vaginal birth may be considered where the viral load is undetectable. Newborns to HIV positive mothers should receive antiretroviral therapy for four weeks after birth to try and reduce the risk of vertical transmission. And breastfeeding should only be considered if the viral load is undetectable. However, there's still a risk of contracting HIV through breastfeeding even when there's no detectable viral load. The final thing to talk about is post-exposure prophylaxis. And this is medication that you take after exposure to HIV to reduce the risk of transmission. It's not 100% effective and it needs to be commenced within a short period, usually less than 72 hours after the exposure. And the sooner it started, generally the better. A risk assessment about the probability of developing HIV should be balanced against the risk of side effects of the post-exposure prophylactic medication because they're not harmless medications. It usually involves a combination of antiretroviral therapy and the current regime is Truvada, which is a combination medication of emtricitabine and tenofovir and raltegravir for 28 days. And then HIV tests should be done initially on the person who's been exposed to the HIV to get a baseline test to make sure they don't already have HIV and then also a minimum of three months after the exposure to confirm a negative status. Individuals who are exposed to HIV need to abstain from unprotected sexual activity for a minimum of three months until they're confirmed to be negative and that no transmission has occurred. So thanks for listening to this episode on HIV. If you found it helpful and you want written notes on this topic and all the other podcast episode topics, head over to Amazon and pick up a copy of the Zero to Finals Medicine book. If you don't fancy a copy of the book, you can find all the notes as well as videos, illustrations, questions and a blog completely free on the Zero to Finals website at zerotofinals.com. And I hope you tune in for the next episode, which will be on malaria.